iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. All right, good evening and welcome back to the Apple Store Soho for tonight's special event. Uh, tonight we present uh, a Meet the Filmmaker event. We have John Hillcoat here to talk about The Road. Um, Meet the Filmmaker is a podcast series and an event series that we bring to you through our Apple retail stores. And if you go on iTunes, you can do a quick search for Meet the Filmmaker and subscribe. Uh, new uh, events can be downloaded to your computer as they're published. And uh, also check the store's website out, apple.com slash Soho, for our upcoming schedule of events. So joining us tonight is uh, director John Hillcoat. Uh, who has brought to the big screen the Cormac McCarthy novel, uh, The Road, uh, which comes out November 25th. Uh, moderating tonight's event is Jason Garasio from Filmmaker Magazine. Uh, he's brought us some complimentary issues, which we'll be passing out, or you can pick one up on the way out tonight. Uh, at this time, please join me in welcoming director John Hillcoat and our moderator, Jason Garasio. Thank you. Welcome, John. Thank you. It is a, an extremely uh, dark and hard movie, but there is also a sense of redemption also in the film, and which I know you yeah. will we'll, we'll talk about. But a, a love story. Yes. <laughs> well, it, no, it's true. There's a, uh, the central, the central uh, story is a love story between a father and a son. Can you talk about just how the material came to you? I, I believe it came to you even before the book had come out, right? Uh, yeah, it was before um, before it was published. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here. Um, it's uh, I've I've actually just uh, found out that recently that it's apparently the most translated book of modern time now. Um, so it's. Uh, and I might add that's because it is a love story underneath it all. So that, um, but it's it's an incredible. I don't know if how many people have read the book. Has anyone read? All oh, right, okay. Oh, very literate audience. <laughs> um, it's very faithful to the book. Uh, I mean, the book. I got it when it was unpublished, so I had no idea what would happen to the book. Um, and it was before No Country for Old Men, the Coen Brothers film, and for all, all of that stuff. Um, I just had an incredible emotional reaction to the, the uh, story, and um, that's how it all started. And your previous film, The Proposition, that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that was loosely based on a Cormac book. Well, it, was, it wasn't based, it was just inspired, inspired. Uh, oh. Blood Meridian. I tried to get the film rights, they weren't available. So uh, that indirectly led to me making the proposition. So obviously you were a fan of his work going into it. So, yeah. I mean, this does, does that put more pressure on it when you're reading The Road and going, gosh, how can I, <laughs> how yeah. can I pull this off? Yeah, I mean, I was certainly, uh, the legacy of McCarthy was already upon me when I got the manuscript. Um, and then, of course, as it, you know, went on to win the Pulitzer and do what all that stuff. I tried not to. Um, I tried to block all that out, um, and just 
be very pragmatic about it, you know, so I wouldn't get distracted and and try not to get intimidated. Uh, but McCarthy himself was, um, Cormac uh, really helped in that process because the first conversation I had, um, he really explained that a novel's a novel, a film's a film. Uh, he, he kind of released the burden of, uh, like he never asked for a script. He was always available to talk answer any questions and uh, we never gave him a script and it was actually fantastic because otherwise I so it kind of uh, he, he let us take it away and then he um, came to set with his son and that's when you realize that it really is a love story because his son is very close to him and calls him Papa and they talk just like, I mean, his son co-wrote, he says co-wrote the book, so. Um, well, he had wrote it around the time of his, his son's birth, or right, was that right, when, when, uh, when he wrote the book? Uh, well, no, actually, he said the first idea came to him when uh, uh, the, his boy was five years old. He was in um, a motel and it was four in the morning, he doesn't sleep well, and he was looking out across a very barren desert, desolate, you know, at four in the morning, and the boy was sound asleep, cause, you know, sleeping away, and he just had this realization, you know, how, how is he going to, um, you know, he, he may not be, you know, Cormac's 76, his son is 10 years old now, so, um, you know, five years ago, that's how the idea came to him um, about that moment when he, uh, you know, the boy passes. He, he sorry, I, this is why I need this coffee. Um, he, um, his, he realizes there'll be a time where he, he uh, you know, his time will come where he, he checks out. Pass the torch to his son. Yeah, he, he's going to pass on and... and uh, his son is going to, and and it was the worry and fear of how is his son going to get on in the world, with all the corporate cannibalism. Has has McCarthy seen the film? Uh, oh yeah, no. He we got him. Uh, I mean, that was the moment of reckoning for me. Was uh, the the um, uh, screenwriter Joe Penhall and myself took the film to New Mexico to show him. And um, we had a, a time, you know, it was just the three of us, we screened it for him. And the lights came up and he mumbled something about going to the men's room and then disappeared for 20 minutes. And we were, you know, us, that's when I thought that, you know, it was all over, I was finished. Um, and, uh, but then he came back and he loved the film and he, um, he didn't miss anything from the book. Uh, other than four lines of dialogue, which he didn't know that we filmed. And we had filmed them, and we put them back in the film. And he was right about them as well. So, um, uh, And he's been a great support since. Well, let's, let's, talk, about, let's, let's talk about Vigo. Uh, was, was he on the uh, immediate short list of people you thought of to play the father? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. He um, he's an incredibly, as you can see, actually in in those, uh, he's very intense. He embraces 
things wholeheartedly. He doesn't. He jumps in 110. percent He's he's very. He's got an. Uh, to me, I think he's got an everyman's kind of face um, that reminded me of uh, uh, the people from the Great Depression trying to get to California in the Midwest. Um, something about his face reminds me of that world. What were the kind of conversations that you two would have going into shooting, or at least the initial talks of, you know, him get, taking the character on? Uh, well, actually, we mainly our greatest fear, we sh which we shared, was uh, who the kid was going to be. You know, he he was really worried, um, and so was I, because those people that know the book, it's a a pretty, uh, it's for a young kid that's uh, it's a lot to take in and and the kid uh luckily was mature way beyond his years and and just amazing um so uh no we just talked all about how we would deal with with and how we would you know form a bond and um uh and then later got involved in you know uh, we had a short list of kids and saw how it worked between each. And then um, once we got Cody, um, then, uh, yeah, we were we had a long sort of rehearsal period of um, not working the scenes, just discussing the script and, and, and uh, with the writer and with, uh, you know, Cody and Vigo and encourage them to hang out as much as possible together. I've I've read in interviews that you've done that really sounds like your one reservation of doing this was casting the kid in, or, or you know working with with a child actor. So, what, what just uh, as an, in a director's point of view, you know, what are the fears in in doing and taking that on? Well, I mean, a lot of uh, well, you do find a lot of kids that are like showbiz kids, as in their parents have kind of really. Uh, train them they've done a lot of training and and they're very kind of i don't know they're they're kind of affected already too polished too polished and and the pressure and 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 it's all coming from the parents really and that those kids i my heart goes out to them because you know it, it really um it's it's tough um i mean we all know what now you know behind the scenes of uh, how michael jackson grew up um, you know, uh, God forbid, child, you know, uh, showbiz parents. <laughs> I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But um, we just, um, I mean, there were some very talented kids, but uh, as well, but it, it required um, someone that really could be uh, thinking where on the face, because I, I think a lot of kids, they get the dialogue or or the moments of a scene, but it's actually the in-between moments that you can see or uh, see their brain switch off and then change gear. And it's that that ability that uh, the best performers, I think, where you can hear their thoughts without them saying a word. And that's what Vigo, uh, Guy Pierce is a master of that, and uh, Duvall and, and Cody, had that quality um he he there wasn't a second you know other than when we you know when we weren't working the scene that he wasn't fully in it and and um 
So, uh, I mean, we got an audition. To, he'd done a film in Australia. His his father is an actor, but they're they're um, he's also Australian, and we didn't. I mean, I I didn't think to look in Australia because I didn't want a kid to have the pressure, the additional pressure of worrying about an accent. And yet, Cody, we didn't need a. a we cancelled the dialogue coach. Spent one hour with him and walked out and said, you're wasting your money. So um, he had no dialogue coach in any of it. And we didn't have to redo anything either later. Um, so he he was just, an, he's just in, exceptionally gifted. Um, his father is actually, uh, oh, he wasn't in there, uh, but he's, he's one of the scariest road gang guys. He's six foot six, covered in tattoos. Uh, his mother's a tattoo artist. Um, his sister's an actress as well. They're kind of a gy strange, like gypsy family, but very down to earth, not sort of affected in any way, and very pragmatic and very driven by, uh, you know, ideas and material. And um, and so when he showed up for the audition, his father had already read him the whole book. Um, and they also, yeah, uh, they did a scene in the book too that I would never have asked any kid to audition for. So, and with his real father playing the father. So it was his message that my son can deal with it or that, you know, it's time for child services to intervene. He really does, like you said, it's not really what Cody says in the film. It's really the actions. It's really the quietness and his posturing and his looks to his father, to Vigo, that really show off his performance in the film. Uh, you know, uh, there really isn't any type of overacting quality to him. It's really the silence of him that's really the most touching. Yeah, uh, and to keep up with Vigo the whole time and, and, and for them to form this incredible bond, which they did, you know, there was an incredible chemistry. Um, and people like Robert Duvall just, you know, within minutes just turned to me and said, so where did you get the kid? Um, so it was, uh, and all of the, you know, Guy Pearce, same reaction. He was whispering in my ear, this kid is incredible. Um, so it was, it was a great gift, like the actual, the fact that I got the material, you know, uh, unpublished and was able to do the film because all the studios completely freaked out. They had first pick mm -hmm. and they didn't, they ran a mile. So that was to my benefit. Um, and then the other great gift was uh, this kid and his maturity and his uh, professionalism and his, you know, he was sword fighting with Vigo, you know, teaching him. Vigo was teaching him how to do all the moves from Lord of the Rings and skateboarding and he, so he's all you know an unaffected kid in that sense um and um yeah so so it was uh, and then we just had the added luck that he happens to look exactly like Charlize you know I mean very similar a lot of people find it quite uncanny so and Charlize Theron is also in the film she plays uh the, the mother um but let's talk about some of these supporting roles that uh, you know, most of the film is between Cody and Vigo, but there are some great supporting roles when they pop up. So uh, how, how did they get involved? Uh? Um, 
Well, they were really critical because anyone, again, that has read the book, they come across so few people and there's so few interaction that they're loaded with significance each time. So um, the material's so rich that you can attract those sort of actors. Um, we have Michael K. Williams, who um, I don't know if anyone knows The Wire, but he played Omar and a brilliant actor, and um, Garrett Dillahunt, who you saw a glimpse of earlier, and Guy Pearce, um, Molly Parker, um, and, um, yeah, and Duvall. Um, but uh, that that's actually just a s tiny snippet, because Duvall does something quite extraordinary that wasn't in the book or the or the script. That was just one of those magic moments, but um, uh, yeah. So, did uh, well talk about just the acting was. Were, were you as concrete as you were in trying to stay as dedicated to the book as you could with all the actors, or if there was something like Duvall had a good idea, you would let them run with it? Sometimes, I mean, in this case, because the book, uh, the the talking about the apocalypse was quite cerebral. And I didn't want the scene to just feel like it comes from a book. So I, what I did was I just asked Duvall to personalize it, make it really personal in some way, you know, because he's lived through all of this. Um, so he and then let Duvall and Vigo run with it a bit. And uh, he comes up with something that um, is incredibly emotive. Um, and uh, one of the best scenes in the film. So, but it, it kind of it works best in context. Um, so there's occasion, you know. That's you're always trying to, um, you know, bring it to life in some way, not be too rigid. Um, and with actors like that, I mean, he he did the uh, virtually the whole scene in one take. Um, I mean, we did several takes, but this version of it, he did it once uh, with two cameras, and that's what's in the film. Now, I, I want to switch gears to talk about Nick Cave, because he's been involved and done music for all your films. Uh, uh, talk about the collaboration you have with him, and, uh, and you know, he also wrote the proposition, too. Yeah. Uh, so how's the connection you have with him, and how does it work on film? <laughs> um, well, Nick's, uh, he, in his free time, he watches movies all the time and in my free time I listen to music so I think th there's something there I work a lot on his um, music projects um, and uh, he's just uh, I've never met anyone so prolific as well I mean he records minimum of one or two albums a year he's just written a book he's written a screenplay, he's doing, publishing another book. This is all in one year. Um, and uh, and he watches more, he watches two films a day um, and virtually every HBO miniseries out there. Um, do, do you show him clips of the film or will you guys just talk about, I mean, I'm not just talking about just oh, yeah, the road, oh, but sorry, anything. Yeah, about <laughs> how do we work? Uh, well, he, uh, I mean, we, discuss the score every time we talk about the uh, before the script's even written and as it's being written and um, it's a bit like with actors too that you you discuss it you kind of talk and prepare as much as possible but then you throw it all away 
when when it comes to you know their moment in, um, as soon as you say action hopefully they've swept all that away so that it, it, it has a a freshness to it and Nick works best that way as well that we discuss it all we have a plan we you know um, there's an approach there's things we agree on like you know no big orchestration um, uh, two types of music in it one for sheer you know suspense and drama you know a, a motor behind the cannibals um, and the other is a more uh, a very soft uh, kind of uh, beautiful but not overworked something quite loose and very only a couple of instruments normally um, and so that was the parameters but then he we just left it until he saw the whole film like not not even uh, but different cuts and then he would um, he and Warren Ellis his partner um, don't know if anyone knows Grinder Man out there no oh well one person <laughs> you're really missing out folks oh two good um anyway warren ellis is part of the bad seeds and works with nick all the time and he's an incredible musician and uh again knows more sees more films uh than most film people i know um so they uh they and they improvise they just see it they go off in a studio, they don't do any click tracks, they don't, you know, and they work very closely with a, a very experienced music editor and myself to to place it, to pick the types, to kind of guide it. But they just record, uh, they, they did about 200 pieces of music for it. And we, of course, and we ended up using like 40. So, uh, or less than that. Something. Oh, that's right. They did ended up with six hours of music, um, and and it's stripped down to about uh, less than less than forty minutes. So yeah. So just with showing the film, you know, before this release now, what is what do you what in your gut as you feel has been like the reaction from audiences? I mean, the the short, quick tagline you could basically say is a post apocalypse film and I, I know that'll make you cringe because we want it to you know it is a love story also but yeah. are people getting that or you know or oh yeah no i mean the uh we've had extraordinary reactions with um you know the the like what people the people what i'm most pleased about aside from Corm cormac himself is that the fans of the book uh, by um you know quite a almost all of them have responded incredibly well you know uh, of course they they went in with negative expectations and i understand that because it's it's a any book that you're uh, you have an impersonal attachment i did myself you know and you you uh and i understand how um yeah you kind of fear the worst that i'm gonna butcher it for you so uh so I understand how that works, but that that's been the most satisfying aspect is that, and and that the fact that people that haven't read the book have you know been moved, you know, um, lots of tears, but in a positive sense, um, and um, yeah, 
Sure. Well, also on top of that, I would imagine. Just, but, oh, oh, no, I go was going to say with the also, it's a world that, I mean, it's all real locations. Um, we shot eighty percent exterior, fifty locations, four four different states in America, and we shot in places like New Orleans with in the aftermath of Katrina, still cleaning up that after all these years and Mount St. Helens where the mountain blew up and so a lot of it was um, it, it was creating a, a post-apocalyptic world that um, is quite people haven't seen and yet we've all seen it in, in uh, sort of on the news or you know there's even um, the smoke billowing smokestacks of 9-11 in there um so it's because the book felt so familiar you know just the image of a shopping cart with all your possessions is the homeless you know the uh, that's what the uh the clothing you know um was all based on that sort of stuff so i think um what we were trying to do uh, is find because what i love about uh genres and as growing up and I still the movies I like to be taken on a you know into another realm and and with genre it can start you have to reinvent the cliche somehow so so it in this sense it, it is an apocalyptic film but it's not about the big event in fact that's never explained um, there's no stock footage <laughs> as the trailer puts in and it's never explained like in the book um, because it's actually about the day-to-day -day survival of this man and child. And um, so, you know, it's, uh, and it's, uh, we, on this tour, it was Apocalypse Now, it was our tour of um, America's apocalypses. I was amazed how many there are. <laughs> Especially the tax incentive states have the most. But also, I would imagine touring around with the film, on top of trying to please the people who love the book, it, you know, it's also taken a while for the film to come out. So on top of that is, I would oh, imagine yeah, as, the, as a filmmaker, you're like, just just trust me, you know, you're, you're gonna like it's coming, it's coming, you're gonna like. Well, it. you can't you can't control those events. I mean, the uh, I was just trying to get the film right, and it wasn't ready last year. Um, so uh, we now, is that just getting the CGI right? Is that oh no, many things. I mean, we we finished filming in May, and our um, one of our locations we found out uh, Mount St Helens was twenty feet under snow in the in late May. So we had to wait until the end of July. So we had to start editing, stop editing, go refilm, uh, continue filming, come back, and all of that protracted the you know and impacted and and it was quite a balance you know um and it was a difficult it's technically it was very difficult because and it's inverse logic any any sunny blue sky we were all miserable and any day that was overcast and raining sideways we were just on top of the world so um it was logistically quite tough and when there were blue we could had to keep we didn't have the budget so we had to keep filming even with blue skies and sun and our spanish dp would be literally cursing the heavens and uh and we'd have to block that out and that's where cgi came in you know we cgi was always our last resort we tried to get everything in camera and then um 
so and that takes time and it was amazing how many things we'd noticed like you know jet streams in the distance or birds and all that kind of stuff um, well before i open up to i just have one more thing john sure. with with the proposition and uh, uh this film and uh, uh your previous film uh ghosts uh you know what what is it about just the, the dark the darkness of you know humanity that attracts you to to do stuff like this uh, well, I'm just always, I was always drawn to the movies in the 70s of uh, where, and worlds where, ex, where, you know, to me, it was a passport into these other worlds, you know, and for me, drama is all about conflict and the greater the odds, the, the more, um, the more special the result. Uh, I'm also very interested under pressure. It's like making a film. You actually see the best and the worst in people and the greater the pressure the more pronounced that is and uh you know it's uh, so i uh yeah i mean i'm not i i'm with roger ebert who said um you know he he pointed out he, he actually even i think he made t-shirts and put it on pens and had it everywhere in the office which is um uh, a good film is never depressing ever, um, only bad films are depressing. Um, I just, you know, uh, I think um, I do try and get some real humanity in there. You know, it's not just, uh, and, uh, but an excitement and, you know, drama. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I do, I guess it's grace under pressure, you know, that thing of, um, you know, going because uh, I saw a lot of theatre when I was young as well, Shakespeare and all that kind of stuff. So I guess that all, uh, you know, infiltrated in some way. All right. Well, uh, I'm I'm sure there's some questions for John. Uh, oh, we, and, ha we have a mic, I believe. But, yes? uh, and I have to add, sorry, that uh, the like Nick Cave has an incredible sense of humour. As a person, is one of the wittiest people. Cormac as well uh, is a great. Uh, and and I um, I'd much rather hang out with those guys. I have met some comic geniuses that are the darkest, scariest people I've ever come across. Anyway, sorry. Uh, hi, over here. Uh, I just wanted to say uh, the film looks great, and it looks like you've made a character-driven movie that's going to be a lasting work of art. Um, but I was wondering when you see another apocalyptic movie that's maybe not character driven and uh, special effects driven and maybe not a work of art uh, going into the theaters the same time as yours. I was wondering what type of emotions and thoughts go through your head as a director and a businessman when that happens. Oh, no, I mean, I, I actually occasionally, I'm, you know, I'm also, I like, sometimes I go to the cinema to as valet parking for the mind and just go on a roller coaster ride and it's all about spectacle and this uh and I'm, i come out but those sort of films it is like a, 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 a in an amusement park you have a th the thrill and i actually sometimes enjoy that and i do actually see those films from time to time but um uh, i do my favorite films are, are films that um stick with you you know that you think about for many years to come and and i also love act I, there's something i love about what great actors can do you know they uh i 
I just, when I see great performances, no matter what the material is, um, that's what I guess I'm more interested in is just other people. Um, you know, I think special effects, it's pretty amazing how they're improving. I do think it's still, to me, I'm a, I just technically, on a technical level, it still feels like a, a video game as opposed to, I actually love that kind of, uh, you know, I grew up with seeing, watching Kubrick films and whether it's Barry Lyndon in the past or whether it's 2001, you just, those films still transport you in the detail and, and the feeling of another world. Whereas the CGI world, I think, is still has a long way to go. Um, and I think it works best when they actually reference rea some kind of, and they're even doing that now, they're learning that even actors now have to be the animals or the creatures because um, when they just created them from scratch, they just, the gravity didn't work. Uh, there was no real gravity and the movement and the speed wasn't real. And I, I, I just, that takes me out. Like I start thinking about, oh, that's, how come that guy is, is moving and the, this creature is kind of, looks like a, a piece of bouncing air so it takes me out of the actual story and um, um, I think actually Lord of the Rings I quite liked because uh, there was a uh, it felt like all the filmmakers and the people involved were actually really believed in the material it didn't feel like just a, a kind of you know so I think the films yeah, so I, I, you know, I think it's just whatever mood you're in, um, but they're not the sort of films that uh, I grew up, um, you know, wanting to to um, get involved with, really. Question in the second row. Hey, um, I'd just like to say that it looks really beautiful and just like the proposition looked really good. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on your... Uh, relationship with the director of photography and maybe how you work well uh thanks for saying that because also i i do think when you're portraying like these kind of extreme worlds like the you know the outback frontier of of blasted uh the 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 landscape there's something even no matter how harsh deserts are there's uh, a great beauty to them and um and even i hate to say it i mean this is what i loved about apocalypse now that in in that kind of spectacle, there's also um, a beauty in it, um, and we try to in these devastated landscapes, we try to um, capture that. Um, and DP, the the cinematographer is very important for bringing a kind of lyricism, and um, I think when you're trying to translate, I mean Cormac. Cormac is such a great poet with the language as well as uh, so that's something you can never translate and yet film particularly in the cinematography and, and sound and music and etc but f uh, the DP can bring uh, it has its own poetic and lyrical beauty to it and that's uh, something that I think you need in with, especially when you're dealing with this kind of material, you know. Um, so uh, I also kind of, so I've worked with two Europeans actually, and that's just partly because they're 
these guys like were masters of natural light and I, I'm working on tight budgets and yet I love that cinematic scope and these guys work very quick because they're used to, um, I think they're going to get more and more work here actually because the whole system's now changing but they're used to working, uh, I mean with just throwing bed sheets on the ground that for bounce light, you know, um, they just work on their feet and they have a great eye and and also, I kind of like the they're out. There's a strangeness to it as well that they bring because they've got an they're from an outside perspective, and a lot of I noticed a lot of Australian cinematographers would always film Australia in a similar way. There was a, a kind of connection and a sensibility, and I wanted to show it in this kind of strange, new way. And likewise with the road, the. It's America that feels familiar, and yet there's a strangeness to it, obviously, since it's so... So I wanted, again, a different eye, a different sensibility. Um, and there are some, you know, there are some great people like Roger Deakins and um, uh, Harris Savides, I think, are the two greats here in America um, working now, that, that have that... Um, but I, yeah. Anyway, so I, I um, it's bringing in the outsiders and um, and we do storyboards. But again, we that's just to come up with certain ideas. Uh, I work very closely with them, but I never like to. Um, well, I learned the hard way actually, where I kind of went by the storyboard and and it didn't work well. So what I like to do is just use it as a guide and uh, certain shots remain and then a lot you just throw away when you're in the location seeing the actors do their thing. Um, so I like working with DPs that can think on their feet that way. Cinematographers that, uh, yeah. We have a question here in the third row. Uh, a two-part question. Um, I just wanted to know what the editing process was like um, for you and um, how much you had your say in the music soundtrack. And um, when you were shooting the scenes, um, was, there, was, there, was there certain scenes at the time of the, of the shoot that you felt like that, that's, that's gonna be a print, and then when you got to the, to the cutting room floor, it didn't really, it yeah. didn't it edit the same way? Yeah, there's uh, particularly uh, a controversial scene, in fact, from the book that, uh, the baby scene. I don't know if you well people will know what I'm referring to that read the book, but um, I f I made sure you know that we were going to film that scene, and we did it technically brilliantly. The actors did it really well, you know. So it was all it all worked. But when we cut it into the film, it's um, talk about your lesson of uh, kill your babies. Um, it it didn't work in the context. It actually uh, made, it was redundant at that point of the story. It was, um, you kind of knew about the threats of this world and it was like restating these themes again at, at the wrong time. And, and I ended up fighting to have it removed. So, um, whereas, you know, on the day it was like, this is going in, you know, we're gonna, we're not, we're not going to shy away from a thing in this book. And, um, and it was interesting, even Cormac never, never even comment. I mean, we, I brought it up, 
you know, uh, months later, but he never commented on it not being in the film, uh, didn't miss it at all. So um, it was a tricky balance in the edit to to get, you know, the level, those, you know, the level of threats um, and that material according and to the love story, you know, the that emotional journey is what we had to protect. And um, despite some of the impression of because uh, there, there's a lot of very tender moments, beautiful moments between the father and son. Um, and um, so it was a balance. We shot more than what we needed and um, to be able to get that balance. So it's a, a very delicate, nuanced thing. Um, and the yeah. music, um, yeah, I mean, Nick, you know, we... Nick and Warren um, was talking about that earlier. Work in a very organic way, and and we uh, did it exactly how we wanted it. Um, there were discussions at some point about other things, and uh, uh, very, but you know uh, whether it was um, Bono doing a, a a power ballad or all. No, I'm just like. Or Bob, actually, at one point, where there was a bit of Bob Dylan in there that we were trying out on the radio, to, just to remind you of the things that we stand to lose um, and be grateful for. That, um, but we ended up um, uh, not needing any of that stuff. And um, and the one thing that we always try to return to is is to remain faithful to the spirit of the book. And that felt a little bit taking it somewhere else. So, I think we'll we'll do a couple more. Do we have? I think we have time for one or two more okay. questions. We'll do a couple more. Uh, good day, good day, sir. I just wanted to say first off, uh, the proposition was a brilliant film on all levels. So thank you very much. Thank uh, you. You've made a f new film here that's kind of about flesh-eating cannibals, which some might say Hollywood is all about in terms of you know the the creative process trying to get your vision across and i'm just trying to wondering how that was for this film and then you're talking about corporate cannibalism true uh and you're working with you know all the people who are funding your project and who are having their demands put on you so i'm just wondering if you could talk about uh getting your vision across for this movie the road and then your career going forward in hollywood well i have to say uh the one thing we all shared, you know, like uh, like Bob Weinstein, the book affected him on an emotional level in the same way that it affected me and the producers and and twenty nine twenty nine again, you know, the Mark Butan, the um, they it was really being that was the thing. I think if it was an original script that had no, you know, Cormac. No country, the Pulitzer. If none of that was involved, then I don't know. That probably might have been a different experience. But we all actually agreed that we had to. Um, all of you know, all those people signed on and and fought to um, make sure we were faithful. So actually, in that sense, it, you know, it's I'm very happy with the result, and. Um, but I also know that there is no way, sadly, and I don't want to depress everyone here, 
But at the moment, the film industry is going through the biggest crisis uh, that's ever happened in, in the history, without any doubt. Um, and there's zero chance that a film like this could be made right now. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I mean, basically, I've seen it happen to the record company. Uh, sorry, um, the music business with record companies. I've I've been involved in with uh, Nick Cave and lots of musicians. And I saw, actually, it's appropriate talking about this in in the Apple Shop. And uh, but basically, I saw what happened. But it's a much bigger crisis because um, when you can touch a button and get a, a hundred million dollar product for nothing, which is what's happening now, finally the technology caught up. Um, you know how how can the industry the industry needs to remodel itself? Like with record, you know the record companies initially had a very bad reaction to the new technology, and they tried to criminalize their actual client you know the audience um so um they're not only the economic downturn it's the perfect storm i mean it's front page headlines in the la times there's twenty thousand people out of work now in the business uh 50 of all the execs in in hollywood have been replaced in the last three months um 2929 the company uh is closed down that funded this. It started with a off, huge office in Hollywood with um, 20 people, um, and now there's one person just supervising the the uh, leftovers. Uh, Miramax, you probably, I don't know how much you know about all this stuff. Miramax is closed. Uh, Focus is going to go next. Um, half the studios have stopped all development. Um, uh, there's been dozens of films just falling over, whether it's Soderbergh and Brad Pitt. Uh, the day before shooting, that, that went down. Ten million uh, wiped out. So it's, it's, it's massive. Um, the proposition and the road, unfortunately, has zero chance of being made in, in these times. So actually, um, I'm about to move to television because it, it's finished, folks. <laughs> Uh, for now, I mean, I had a great. I can. Uh, I'm a bit frustrated. You hit a raw nerve because I had a fantastic project that Nick wrote, Nick Cave, that's better than the proposition. Everyone agrees the script's just amazing, and it's a gangster film. Uh, and we had uh, Ryan Gosling, Shia LaBeouf, uh, Michael Shannon, Michael Fassbender, Paul Dano. Amy Adams, um, uh, people like uh, Kerry Mulligan, interested Scarlett Johansson, and on and on. Kevin Bacon, on and on it goes, and um, uh, for not much money, um, and that's again zero chance of getting that made, um, and that's all falling apart as well. So I'm afraid. It will change around, by the way. I mean, the hope is that in 18 months, because the studios are having such a negative reaction, it's overkill. The fear, everyone's overreacting. And literally, companies, you know, major studios are literally saying it's franchise or low-budget comedy and absolutely nothing in between. And uh, most of the studios are saying that now. Um, 
And what it's creating, though, is a huge void in the market. You know, um, so any drama that gets through now, in I predict in eighteen months, is going to just do unbelievable business, and then it'll all be back on. Um, and plus, uh, they can't make films the way they, they've been doing it. Just can't. The industry cannot sustain itself spending. Like a movie like State of Play cost over ninety million, and it's a contemporary drama about lawyers in the city. They can't spend money like that anymore. Um, marketing costs are too much. Um, it costs more in this country to market a film than it does on making a film. So the entire model has to change. Um, and I've been talking for five years about it with every exec. Uh, in the business, and everyone's buried their head in the sand. But now, that that bubble's popped. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a very interesting time. I mean, it's great opportunity. You know, whenever there's a crisis, um, to for interesting things to come out of that. And whoever develops the website, I'm, I'm tipping everyone off on this uh, that. Like iTunes, the way that iTunes developed its music website, whoever does that most effectively with films, uh, I predict in five years' time will replace uh, all the major studios. Um, so if anyone's out there wanting to make a lot of money, be my guest. Um, but it will change. There won't be, uh, you know, the economics. Uh, I think people need to be educated, though, because um, you know uh, there won't be these sort of films won't be able to be made. Um, I mean, they'll be able to be made for a much lower budget, but then you can't have that cinematic scope, and you you might not get the same sort of actors, and um, so yeah, it, it's it's an interesting period. We're gonna do cool. one more. Do we have? We have time maybe for one more question. Have, I thought somebody yeah. had their hand up over there. I had my hand up, but um, I think you actually just covered a lot of what I wanted to ask about. I just wanted to say thank you for saying that. I'm an indie filmmaker, and it's a wild time. Um, I guess if I was going to say something about sort of off of what you just said, my question is, I mean, what do you do in development now? I mean, you're going to television, and that makes a lot of sense, but like... You know, you have a great story, you have a great script, you're willing to do it for, you know, a million dollars or some, you know, some low amount of money. Like, how do you get a project it through development now? Like, what do you think? Well, I thought, uh, it depends. I mean, if, uh, if it's Barbie, they're, they're, I just heard they're doing Monopoly, the movie. They're doing Battleship, they're doing Barbie. Uh, I'd, no one's picked up on Ronald McDonald or, or Coca-Cola or Pepsi, but there'll they'll be new films coming. Um, I don't know. I mean, if it's a drama... I mean, the good uh, with script... Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to say at the moment um, because there's, there's uh, very few companies now. You can count them uh, on half a hand that are now developing... Um, so you've got to use your own resources. You know, my advice would be to, if you can find a script writer that will do it on spec, and then uh, you know, um, 
and just persevere because it will turn around. I mean, they're going to they're going to be coming to the people that know how to make things for less in 18 months time on their knees begging um, because I, I, I don't buy the that audiences will just be satisfied with Barbie and Monopoly and Ronald McDonald and Coca-Cola. There, there's going to be, uh, you know, it's an. There are, uh, if you look at the films in recent years, there's incredible. I think American films have been really coming. Like when you look at that year with No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood and films like Capote and, I mean, they're in, those, you know, are incredible. It showed that there's an audience out there um, uh, that wants a bit more than you know just just these um corporate exercises so um it's uh you know and if look hangover is is everyone wants to make hangover that 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 was rejected by most studios and um but um so it's it's tough i mean those they were really lucky to get that through um but um how do you convince them you know and the problem is they they just want right now no one's prepared to uh they're they're everyone's afraid of losing their job the last you know 50 percent of most companies you know have got rid of their staff that so a huge cull in employment so those people left with their jobs are so fearful of putting their own job at risk so they're going to make the safest choice you know um so that no fingers can point to them but they won't survive because the film business only survives and all those great successes have actually take, taken a risk. You know, Hangover's another one. They took a risk. They weren't known big stars and, um, and uh, you know, regardless of what the film's like, it, it, you know, it did do the rounds and a little, uh, just an irony here, No Country for Old Men, Cormac, wrote as a screenplay originally and no one in the business wanted to make it and so years later he turned it into a novel um so that's how ironic the business is um and and there's always uh it's that thing of uh uh you know uh there's opportunities in moments of crisis you know um so i just yeah I don't know what to say other than hang in there. <laughs> well, John, thanks very much for an honest talk about the road and also about Hollywood as well. I'm sure everybody got a lot out of it. So, John Hillcote, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. The film The Road is in theaters November 25th. Go check it out. We want to thank our special guests, and we want to thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. Visit the store's website, apple.com slash soho, for more upcoming events, and we hope to see you next time.